Katie and I uh, took a hiking trip several years ago where uh, we did this really long hike. I can't remember <coughs> if there's like 12 miles, right? 12, 14 miles, half dome. Oh, uh, right. 17. 17 miles. Wow, okay. <laughs> 17 miles. And so, you know, cut that in half, and, you know, half of the trip was up, half the trip was back, and the trip back down. I was feeling a lot of pain because actually uh, the trip back can be a lot more painful because going down is a lot harder on your knees because you're having to, all that weight going downhill, you're, uh, you're having to stop your weight as you're going down. Uh, but there's this little restaurant uh, by the campgrounds that we stayed at that sold on the menu uh, a double bacon cheeseburger. And so we're saying, okay, when we get down there, you know, we try to conserve a lot of our, our some of our, you know, budget of like we're going to carry a lot of food with us and like make sandwiches and stuff. And we had like this cooler and we get ice and throw it in there. And so we're like eating cucumbers and stuff. Cucumber is like one of the lamest vegetables, but it's good for you kids. Uh, but, but it's lame vegetable. Uh, but we're you know eating you know this cheap food uh, and, and healthy food. But we're like when we get down there, going to the restaurant, splurging double bacon cheeseburger. And so I'm going through this pain. But I'm keeping the end in mind, double bacon cheeseburger at the restaurant when we get down there. And so you know, keeping that in mind, that's my motivation. And we do that for a lot of things when we're going through something difficult, something hard, or something that's taking a long time, but we'll keep the end in mind. You know, it's a lot easier when you're on the trip to the water park. It's a lot easier to get to the water park because you're keeping the end in mind than it is to make the trip back home. Because we're just going back home. I mean, maybe you're tired and you're like, oh, I'm probably going to get to rest. Maybe that's what parents are thinking. Like, okay, finally, you know, that was a vacation. But really, I heard somebody say, vacation is really just parenting in a different state. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, for parents, maybe it's like, finally, we'll be back home, sleep in our own bed. But for kids, it's a lot easier to get to the water park because you're like, I'm going to get to the water park so the drive is a lot easier. Maybe there's the are we there yet thing, but you know, getting to the water park is a lot easier than going home because it makes it more bearable because we keep the end in mind. Or maybe you've had a long week at work, but you're saying, okay, it's, you know, maybe you're still whistling you know, through the work day because you're like, I've got a good weekend coming up. And keeping the end in mind so it's easier to get there. Maybe you've had a long, tiring drive, but you're like, okay, I can make it through because at the end of this, I get to sleep in my own bed, or maybe you have a long trip and you think, okay, but at the end of this, I get to see you know, my family or a loved one, or you know, you're driving somewhere to visit a friend. You're like, okay, this is a you know, five-hour drive or whatever, but at the end of it, I get to see you know, this person I haven't seen in a long time. You're keeping the end in mind, and it helps you make it through. And those are examples of how we might keep the end in mind to motivate us through something, but we also need to keep the end in mind uh, for all of life. And whatever end we keep in mind is what we're placing our hope in. And it's where we find our hope. It, it pulls us forward. And so what end do you keep in mind to get you through life? And this week we're continuing this series called Pictures of Following Jesus. And we've, um, this is the seventh week. And if you paid attention, like I said, this is kind of a bonus message. We've said we're looking at six passages. Uh, we've been asking, okay, the Bible tells us repent. Trust in Jesus, believe, follow him. But what does all that mean? So we've been looking at these pictures, uh, you know, pictures worth a thousand words. What is a, a picture of all those things? A picture of believing in Jesus, a picture of following Jesus, of trusting in him. And we've um, been looking at the back of our songbook. If you flip um, to the back of it, you'll see what our roadmap has been for this series on the very back page. <coughs> what is Good News Church all about? On that last page, says, as a community, uh, we are... Uh, surrendering all of life to Jesus and inviting others to do the same. Larry reminded us of that at the start of the service. So the first thing we looked at is a picture of surrender. That's our mission. We want to be surrendering all of life. You know, that's our personal thing as a community, as individuals. 
But then we're also inviting others to do the same. We want to invite other people, invite each other, invite people outside of this community to surrender their lives as well. But then how do we do that? We, by practicing believing the gospel, looked at a picture of the gospel, I looked at a picture of what does it look like to be welcomed by God and the good news. We looked at a picture of living as family, of loving as servants, of going as messengers, and of relying on the Spirit. And so we looked at a picture for all six of those things. And today's picture, uh, my intent was, it was inspired by our vision <coughs> statement. And we do all this so that we can show and tell the good news of Jesus to every man, woman, and child. And so uh, today I wanted to look at a picture uh, that was inspired by a passage that inspired that vision statement from the book of Revelation. Um, because in the book of Revelation we see um, not necessarily every man, woman, and child in heaven worshiping Jesus, but we see men, women, and children from every people group, every tribe, tongue, and nation um, that we see Jesus' mission successful, that he sends us to make disciples of all nations, of all ethnic people groups, and then and we see at the end of time that, oh, someone from every single ethnic people group is there at the end worshiping Jesus. And so that mission is successful. It's not that everyone in all those groups becomes a follower of Jesus, but at least someone from everyone is saved. And so we're sent to go to you know wherever it is to go and show and tell the good news of Jesus to every man, woman, and child in you know, wherever it is we're sent so that we can make disciples of these groups. And so that... Uh, but it, this message, as I studied the passages, I realized that it became much more than just looking at a picture of that. Because as I looked at a picture of um, where our lives, as followers of Jesus, are headed, that was kind of what I wanted to look at. Like, okay, where does our life as a follower of Jesus end? You know, we end worshiping Jesus with all these other people around the throne from all these other different people groups of all different <coughs> colors and nationalities and ethnicities. And it's like, it's not just, you know, from one nation or one color group, but it's like people from all different, all around the throne, worshiping God, all saved by, for the same reason. We're all there because of Jesus. None of us was like, oh, you did these good works, or you were saved because of this reason. We're all saved because of Jesus. We're all there for the same reason. So I thought, oh, that's what we're going to look at today. Um, Jesus' mission was, success, was successful. But then I realized when we look at where the life of a Jesus follower ends, that really becomes the motivation for continuing to follow Jesus today. That when we keep that end in mind, that becomes a huge motivation for why do I keep following Jesus um, today? And so when we look at those six things that we look at at the end of the back of our songbook, why do we keep doing those things? Why do we keep surrendering all of life to Jesus? Why do we keep inviting people to do the same? Why do we keep believing the gospel, living as family? Why would we keep doing all these other things? It's because we keep the end in mind. Now when we uh, open to the book of Revelation for our scripture readings, maybe you got a little nervous and thought, oh boy, what are we going to be talking about today? Uh, and it's true that the book of Revelation, if you're familiar with it, has some wild imagery um, but the imagery often gets used for the exact opposite purpose that it was intended for. Um, the Apostle John received these visions in this book <coughs> from Jesus himself um, at a time when the church was going through a rough period. It was near the end of the first century, so in the 90s um, AD, and they were experiencing difficulty. There's hatred from the outside in the form of persecution, people hating the church, people hating people for being believers. And there was some false teaching that had crept in. People were getting deceived by that. 
And some people are being lured, lured away by the love of the world. Oh, you know what? It's actually you know, nicer to have the things of the world rather than following Jesus. And what these visions in the book of Revelation do is they pull back the curtain a bit. You know, like maybe you're watching a play and you're like, you know, it would be kind of neat to see what's going on behind the scenes back there. Like, how are they getting all this, all this is happening? And what the book of Revelation does is it pulls us, lets us go and see what's happening backstage with all this stuff, you know, this persecution, this hatred, what's happening with this false teaching, what's happening with um, this, all these, this love of the world stuff. And what the book of Revelation does is it lets us get this backstage view, like, look, look what's happening behind the scenes. It's actually Satan's the one behind the scenes trying to use all this stuff to pull people away. But then it even goes back behind the scenes further and shows, like, no, but look who's actually in control. In control. Look what's actually happening. And as we saw in our first scripture reading, look who's on the throne. Look how everything's actually going to end. And so the whole thing that it's supposed to show us is you know, this is God's future for believers. It's amazing. It's glorious. It's secure. You don't have to worry about it. Even if you have all this thing happening up front, like Satan is a defeated enemy. God is in control. He's on the throne. And so overcome Satan, stay strong until the end. And the book is intended to keep us strong in our faith and not fearful, but it's often used for the opposite purpose. It's used to look for signs that it's the end times. You know, people use it to, well, what are the signs that we're in the end times? And, you know, let's all get worried about that and fearful of it. It's actually supposed to do the exact opposite. It's supposed to make us secure and strong and not worried about what's going on in the world. Because, look, God has got this. He's on the throne. And Jesus wins. That's a, what the book is supposed to make us do, is not create fear, but to be secure. So today I want to use Revelation for its purpose. Uh, we're going to look at several passages uh, quickly. We've seen, we've been in this series of pictures, and, and Revelation is a book of pictures. I want to quickly look at four pictures that the book of Revelation gives us <coughs> that I hope and pray will encourage us to keep going in our faith today. They've been greatly encouraging to me um, as I've looked at them this week in preparation. So our big idea for today is this. Uh, keeping the end in mind keeps us following until the end. <coughs> keeping the end in mind keeps us following until the end. Keeping the end in mind keeps us following until the end. So let's look at the first picture that helps us with that. Keeping the end in mind keeps us following until the end. And that's the first picture we've already read. It's in Revelation 4 and 5. Picture 1 is called the throne. So Revelation 4 and 5, picture 1 is called the throne. And I said our big idea is keeping the end in mind keeps us following until the end. Uh, but this picture really isn't a picture of the end. Um, it is a picture of the end, but it's also a picture of the beginning. It's a picture of the middle. It's a picture of the end. It's a picture of what always has been what always will be. Um, God is always on the throne. God is always in control. God is always in charge. And it's a picture, Revelation chapter 4 shows us that um, God is never off the throne, no matter what things may look like in our life, whatever the circumstances may look like. And Revelation chapter 4 shows us that um, Jesus is the one who accomplishes God's plans, both for salvation and both for judgment of those who reject him. It's a picture of what has been, what is, what always will be, and not just what's true of at the end. And in chapter 4, John sees his vision. God's on the throne. 
And he's trying to use language to describe that. He's like grasping for language. You know, when we think it's weird, he's talking about like, I saw someone made of jasper and carnelian, you know, he's weird. And it's like, what the heck? Somebody made of like these precious stones. And he's grasping for language. And there's this rainbow that looks like emerald. And there's a sea of glass that looks like crystal. Like, okay, is heaven going to be made of glass? And there's rainbows and there's thunder and lightning. And he's like, what is this place that he's seeing? And he's like, seeing an otherworldly experience because he's seeing God in heaven and this, and he's trying to find language to describe it and, and talk about it and he, and he just doesn't know, uh, he's trying to figure out how to talk about it and he's trying to use words and he's grasping for them and so he's experiencing something out of this world and struggling to describe it. And God is surrounded by the beings of heaven, the angelic council of elders and and there's also these creatures of heaven called the living creatures and there's eyes on all of them. There's like this ever-seeing presence. And they never cease praising God with this hymn that we see in chapter 4, verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And when they give their glory and honor and thanks with their hymn, then the angelics of the living creatures say that, and then the angelic council of elders fall down before God and worship Him. They cast their crowns before Him. They have these crowns that represent like they're this council of angelic elders uh, that God uses to do his will in the world. And then they cast their crowns before him, praising God with their own hymn in verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were, cre- and were created. And then in chapter 5 we learn about this scroll that cannot be opened. And this scroll represents the plans of God. It's like sealed up, and this is God's plans for the world, of what he's going to accomplish. And the angel calls out, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And if you've heard of the um, musician Andrew Peterson, uh, he has this, his, this song, I'm blanking on the name, uh, who, uh, Is He Worthy? And it's a song all about this chapter, Revelation chapter 5. Like, is he worthy? Who is worthy to open this scroll? And it's a song about Revelation chapter 5 about who is going to be worthy to open the scroll and unleash the plans of God that he has for the world. The scroll is sealed up. No one can is worthy to open up this scroll and to accomplish God's will and God's plans. And someone needs to be found who's worthy to open it. But no one is found who's worthy. And so John, who is one of Jesus' closest disciples, he's seen this vision. And so he starts to weep. So he says, no one, no one can accomplish God's will. No one can do God's plans. What, what is going to happen here? And verse 5 says, the angel tells him, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah... The root of David is conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. And the angel tells John not to weep because the lion is conquered. This is the root of David, the one who's the king who's come in the, from David's line. And it's referring to Jesus that we've seen as he comes from David's line. He's the king on David's throne. But then John looks and, okay, go. where's this lion? I'm going to go see this lion. But he looks and he doesn't see a lion standing there, you know, like Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb who looks like it's been slain, who looks like he's dead. He's been, I mean, he's alive, but he looks like he's been killed. Because Jesus didn't triumph by war, but by dying on a cross. He triumphed by dying in our place, by being slaughtered as a sacrificial lamb, like the sacrifices in the Old Testament. He's the, the king, the lion from the line of David, who has died as a sacrificial lamb. And that's what makes him worthy to accomplish God's plans because God is making a people for himself holy, blameless, white as snow by 
forgiving us of our sins by taking that upon, paying for them himself. This is what makes him worthy to accomplish all of God's plans. He's the one who does God's will and makes God's plans possible. And at seeing him, at seeing the lion and the lamb, who's the same person, Jesus, the angelic elders and the heavenly creatures burst into song in verse 9, chapter 5. Worthy are you, singing to Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And here's you know, all the different people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. And so that's the, the angelic elders and those heavenly creatures that were singing before in chapter 4. And then in verse 12, more people join them. Thousands upon thousands of angels join in praising the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to achieve power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so more and more. So first it's the elders and the living creatures. And then uh, a bunch of angels join in. And then in verse 13, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in sea says to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might for and ever and ever. And so it's just the, the praise for Jesus just keeps swelling and swelling and becomes more and more. And so the first picture is about who is on the throne. And as we follow Jesus, no matter what we face, there's one who is always on the throne. And there's one who is always worthy of our praise. And there's a lamb who is slain to ransom and redeem us for God. And there's the lion who is worthy to fulfill God's plans. God is in charge no matter what happens. And we need to keep the throne in mind to keep us following until the end. No matter what's happening in life, we need to keep the end in mind that God is on the throne. We need to keep in mind right now that God is on the throne to keep us following until the end. So that's the first picture. Let's look at the second picture. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. This is picture 2, <coughs> picture of victory. And this is Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Picture of victory. Jesus is the lion and the lamb who is worthy to accomplish God's plans, which include both salvation and judgment. And chapter 6 includes God's judgment on those who oppose him and who oppose his people. And because there are those who oppose his people, there are times when God's people go through immense suffering. And in chapter 7, we see a picture of victory for all God's people. And so let's read verses 9 through 17. After this, this is John speaking, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. 
They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The picture in Revelation 4 and 5 was of heavenly beings, angels and the living creatures, praising God and praising Jesus in heaven. And this is a picture of human beings in heaven praising God and praising Jesus in heaven. And the mission Jesus gave us, as I said, is to make disciples of all nations, of all ethnic people groups. And this passage shows us that, that, that at the end that mission is successful. It's not that every single person from every tribe, nation, and tongue an ethnic people group believes, but at least someone from every ethnic people group comes to believe because here Jesus shows John uh, this picture that someone from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every ethnic people group is worshiping before the throne of God and before the Lamb in heaven. And what they're wearing and what they're holding is important. Verse 9 says they're clothed in white robes with palm branches on their hands. And white is a color of purity. But it's also a color of victory. And palm branches are also a symbol of victory as well. If you remember Palm Sunday, palm branches, Palm Sunday, they're way, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. It's this, he's going to be our king. It's this celebratory thing. It's this uh, palm branch of victory. And how are they victorious? Verse 14 says, They've washed their <coughs> robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's why they're wearing white robes. Why are they victorious? They've washed them white in the blood of the Lamb. They're victorious to the Lamb that was slain. The lion, look, look, the lion is worthy to open the scroll. Oh, but it's a lamb who looks as if he was slain. His death makes them pure, makes them white as snow. Those who believe in Jesus are made white because of his death. Whatever life was like for them before, now they stand victorious before God and the Lamb crying out together, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verses 16 and seven, or 15 through 16 tell us what life is like for them now. It says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall, know, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne shall be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And our big idea for today, keeping the end in mind, keeps us following until the end. And in this life, we may be misunderstood for our faith, we may be disliked, we may be harassed, we may be ridiculed and rejected, you might even be hated, and in some places you could even lose your life. In this life we may suffer, we may be afflicted, we may be hurt, maybe experience loss. In this life we, we may have losses and hurts because of our faith, because of the world that does not approve of us. In the end though, if we follow Jesus to the end, we'll experience celebration and victory uh, with God and the Lamb. And at the end, we'll, he'll wipe away every tear from our eye that we have cried. And will satisfy, satisfy us beyond any loss we've had in this life because of our faith or that, or that we've given up because of our faith. And keep, keep in mind that this is not a message for John. Like, hey John, you know, this is just like a personal message I want to give you. But this is a vision that Jesus gave to John. 
that was intended to now be a message that he gives and writes down. John, Jesus tells him, write this down that you can now give this to the churches. It's supposed to be a vision that he gives to John and now he gives to the believers. So Jesus wants to tell all of his followers, this world may treat you rough. People may reject you and even hurt you because of your belief in me. He warned his followers that that would happen. And you may experience suffering in this life, but in the end, God who sits on the throne will shelter you with his presence. And Jesus says, I'll be there at the finish line waiting for you. And God will be there too to wipe away every tear from your eyes personally. Our big idea is keeping the end in mind keeps us following to the end. And so as we're suffering, whether it's for our faith or just suffering in general because of the how this world is, is messed up, keeping the end in mind that, well, Jesus is going to be there at the end, and God's going to be there to wipe away the tears from my eyes from what I've experienced in this life, whether it's from people who have hurt me or the evil in it or the things that I've lost. God's going to be there himself to wipe away those tears. And let's look at the third picture in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. This is the third picture of four. <coughs> picture three, the marriage supper. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. I'm sorry, 6 through 9, we're actually going to do. Picture 3, marriage supper. This is a picture of Jesus' second coming. Uh, The previous picture was in heaven, which is a picture of what's currently happening in heaven. People around with God, on the throne with him. So when we die, enter God's presence, and he's there to wipe away tears from our eyes. That's one way that we end our life of following Jesus. Another way we end it is by Jesus returning. This is a picture of Jesus' second coming, chapter 7. Picture of in heaven. The end of the book of Revelation is what Jesus returned. He comes to judge those who've rejected God. And this passage is a picture of what he comes to do for his church. And So let's read in verses 6 through 9. Chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, he often used the image of a great banquet, like being invited to this great banquet. The Apostle Paul talked about Jesus' relationship with his people, with the church, like the relationship between a husband and a wife. In biblical times, there were two major events that constituted constituted a marriage. There was uh, the betrothal, or the we call it an engagement, but betrothal was what they called it then, uh, and the wedding. And when two people were betrothed, like Mary and Joseph, if you remember, Mary and Joseph uh, were betrothed when they found out Mary was pregnant with Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, but they were all already considered married at that point, which meant they were to be faithful to one another. It wasn't like, hey, we're engaged, but that could be broken off, and like we could go find somebody else. It's like, we are married, um, we're betrothed to each other, and there's going to be a wedding day, but they're, they're already married. It's not like our engagements. It's like, we're betrothed, uh, which means we're already married, and then you know, we're married, there's betrothals, and there's wedding day. Uh, 
And so they're already married, and they're wait, awaiting that wedding day. But the wedding hadn't taken place. They weren't living together. They're not having um, sex at that point. They're at, and the marriage, uh, and on the wedding day, there would be a procession to the bride's house, and then a return to the groom's house where there would be a marriage feast. And here in Revelation, we see Jesus returning for his bride, the church, to whom he is betrothed, to have that marriage supper. And so we're, as a church, we're betrothed to Jesus. We're married to Jesus. Um, but uh, the day when we have that, the wedding, the marriage feast, uh, has not yet happened. And this is a picture of all those following Jesus, dressed in white, because of our faith, and because of now our righteous living, because of our faith in him, uh, and what he's done for us, now sitting with him at that great banquet, that day when he's now come, and now we come to him and live with him at his house, and it's a joyous celebration with Jesus, the one who's loved us and gave himself for us, died for us, um, who's redeemed us and saved us, and also with all those others who've trusted in him, all of his people that he's died and loved and redeemed and saved, now sitting at, I don't know, a table or on the ground, whatever, how are we going to do it at this big wedding banquet of all his whole entire church, his bride, that now we're at this big banquet with him of joyous celebration that he's come for us. Our big idea is keeping the end in mind, keeps us following till the end. And we may think, man, I'm just here plugging along. And we're, we're going through these images because and it may seem like, okay, we've already covered this whole joyous celebration thing. You know, why we keep hitting these images? And it's like, because the book of Revelation does. And these people in the New Testament just had their minds captivated by Jesus coming back someday. And he's coming to get us. And that's what motivated them to keep going, even when people are beating them up and rejecting them and throwing them out of their houses and throwing them out of everything they knew and they're risking their lives and willing to die for it. And they're saying, because one day Jesus is coming for us and we're going to get to sit around this table with him and everybody else who stay faithful to him to the end. And we need that in our minds. And they just kept fixating themselves on it. And we need to do that as well. Let's look at our fourth, final picture in Revelation 21. This is picture four, picture of restoration. We'll read verses one through eight. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I'll be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, 
sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus will come again, and heaven will come to earth to renew the earth, and God will make his home with his people. And reread verse 4 again with me. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We'll be comforted <coughs> by God himself for what we have experienced in this life, and the brokenness, the evil, and the darkness of the world that caused that hurt and pain will pass away. In verse 5 it says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. This is a picture of restoration, the renewal. Our world is one that is corrupted and broken by our own sin, our own rebellion against God, who is the one who wants it to be a world of life and blessing. But God will restore it. And in verse 8 we're also given a picture of what happens to those who reject God. And much of this book deals with God's judgment on those who have rejected him. And we skipped over a lot of that. It would be a whole other sermon, I mean a whole other you know, series of sermons to talk about what happens to those um, who reject God. Um, but let me say this, God's judgment on evil is a good thing. And we need to know that also to keep us following till the end. Because for us who have been hurt and wounded by evil, and those of us who see evil on TV uh, or in our families or out anywhere, you know, we need to know that we can leave that in the hands of God and that he's going to deal with it one way or another. That either the, somebody who has done evil and sin, that God's going to deal with it in judgment and they'll be punished, or it's going to be dealt with and paid for by Jesus on the cross and they'll be forgiven. That keeps us going rather than giving up and saying, like, well, there's so much evil in the world and so much hurt. I've been hurt in so many ways. There's so much suffering. God's not doing anything about it, so I'm done. I'm not following him. But we can say, no, God has shown me that he's going to deal with it. He shows me in this book that he's going to deal with it. And so I'm going to keep following to the end because I know that he's not going to let this pass. And that keeps us following to the end as well. And when God's people are suffering at the hands of other people because because they believe in Jesus, when they're suffering because of their belief and faith, we need to know that God is on the throne, that he sees it, and that he's going to take care of it. And that's not suffering for nothing, that God is faithful. And we see this picture of restoration, and knowing this world is messed up, but this is not the end, that this is not the, the world that it was designed to be, but that God is going to restore it and make it new. That keeps us going to the end, that no, the prize... The reward that God wants to give his people is a world restored and a world renewed. You know, it might look at like a broken down car. I don't know if any of you are like, you know, old car restorationists or house fixer-uppers. You know, it look like an old broken down car, an old broken down house, and it's like, well, that thing's, you know, not very fun to drive or, or live in. And it's like, well, but what could it be? And it's like, well, God wants to have this a house or a car that's restored that we live in and get to drive, and that's the future that that God has for us and keeping that end in mind. So keeping the end in mind keeps us falling until the end. Between now and the end, Satan will use two main tactics to get us to abandon our faith in Jesus. The hate of the world and the love of the world. Jesus warned us that the world will hate us for loving him. If we stand for what Jesus stands for, sooner or later people 
won't like that because people want to live for their own kingdom and not for his. And so if you stand for Jesus' kingdom and people want to live for their own <coughs> kingdom, those two things come into conflict. And so Satan will use that hate to get us to abandon our faith in Jesus and to join that other kingdom. But it'll also use the love of the world to get us to love the things of the world and to care about those things, to wrap up in caring about those, money and possessions and stuff and you know, maintaining all the things and worries of... The, uh, of this life and if you can't scare us out of following Jesus let's distract us by maintaining all the stuff you know here and getting more of it the lie that Satan wants us to believe is that having the love of others and having the things of this world are better than what God has to offer us and the Apostle Paul as we close for as we think about application for our lives the Apostle Paul said that knowing what awaits us at the end of our life and the return of Jesus and what we will have there makes it all the difference in facing the trials, uh, suffering, whether it's the suffering of this world or the pressure and opposition people might give us for our faith. You know, what, you know, For us, we may think, like, well, nobody really hates me for my faith. But often what we do is we hide our faith because we want to fit in, because we're like, well, I'm afraid of what will happen if I kind of talk to somebody about Jesus or, or if I stand up for my morals of what I know is wrong or if I... I don't think you should have done that. We're afraid of what will they do if I do that. And so we don't even find out what will happen. And it's not even be some sort of extreme hate like what some of these folks are experiencing in the Bible times. And so we have an even more subtle form of it. Um, but we, Paul says when we're facing trials and suffering, it makes all the difference of knowing what we're going to get at the end. He says that what, that what we face now is incomparable to the weight of glory we'll receive. And that's not to say that what we face now doesn't have any weight. That the suffering we face now doesn't have a weight. Or that hate, hatred or ridicule or you know, people doing things to us now or you know, like gossiping about us or slandering us or not liking us, like that doesn't have any weight. Like, oh, that's nothing. Don't worry about it. Like, there's some weight to that. Like, it hurts. But I brought a little scale here. Maybe you can't see it. But think about this scale. Like, if you put on here, like, you know, I'm going through a tough time right now. If you go, if you say, I'm going through a tough time right now, like Paul doesn't say, like, you, you put that on the scale, like, well, it's nothing. Don't, you know, who cares? Like, he's not saying it, it doesn't matter. But if you put it on the scale, it's like, yeah, that has weight to it. Like, that hurts. It, you're going through a tough time, suffering, trials, affliction. It has weight to it. It hurts. You, 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 if you talk to somebody about Jesus, they might reject you. They might never talk to you again. Or if you, you know, you have a family of a bunch of people who, um, don't believe in Jesus and now you got saved and then you talk to them about Jesus and now they're like, we're never talking to you again. Like, that hurts. Or you have a coworker that you brought up your faith with and now they just don't talk to you anymore or they treat you differently. Like, that hurts. Like, there's weight to that. But he says, what he says is, it's incomparable to the weight of what we're going to receive. He says, in comparison, it's not even comparable. Those things can weigh a lot. Whatever we've lost or could lose is incomparable to what we will gain. Losing the approval or the opinion of others is nothing in comparison to what we gain. Or losing the things of this world is nothing in comparison to what we should gain. And so, think about the picture. So I have a little picture. It doesn't matter what's in it. I don't even know what this is. I found it in our closet. <laughs> Maybe Katie knows what it is. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to stand. But now think about the picture... What picture in life drives you forward? Or what do you live for? I think so often, we almost are living for 
just today. Like, I just need to make it through this day because my picture is I get two hours of free time tonight. And that's like what drives me to get through today. Or we maybe we'll think about the weekend. Okay, I'm this weekend I'm going to get time off and that's what like motivates me to make it through this week. Or we'll think about like my next vacation or you know that's coming up. Or maybe we'll even think about, okay, I just got to make it to retirement and that's like what kind of drives our life. And we so often don't even think about eternity or with being with God at the end of our lives or Jesus coming back. And that was what filled the hearts and minds of these people in the Bible and what was the picture that was motivating them. But what we so think about what picture do you if you want something to reflect on for the week or right now? What picture do you live for to overcome today's challenges? What picture do you live for to overcome today's challenges? picture do you live for to overcome today's challenges, to get you through? Is it the weekend, retirement, the next vacation? Maybe it's shopping, the next big purchase. Maybe it's money. If I could just have this much money, like that's the picture. If I have this picture of, if I had this much money in my bank account, or it's this next thing I could have, what do you put on the scale? Is it the next adventure, or is it the next promotion? If it's, and I have this picture of my success, or, you know, it's it's this next thing in my job or if it's I could land this next big sale or if, you know, if my family could be this way what's the picture you have that you think it, when I make it to this when I have this picture in my life then things will be good and that's I'm just fighting for that picture you know and that's you know that's what I'm fighting for and when I get there that's the end and that things will be okay does that weigh enough in comparison to the challenges and hardships. And when you put what you're, what you're facing, the thing like for your challenges and hardships or suffering that you're facing, when you weigh that on the scale and when then you put that picture of what you're trying to use to make it through those things, like do they weigh about the same? Does that picture weigh you know, enough to make it through all those things? In comparison, is it, does it weigh enough? The Bible says that what God has prepared for those who love him is incomparable in weight to all we might suffer in hardship now. Weighs more and is worth more than all that we might even give up or lose. And the Bible calls us and shows us that we can be a community whose minds are flooded with these images that we've seen today. And our minds flooded with them and our hearts full of joy, the joy that it brings. And that we are, as we have our minds and hearts fixed on that heavenly community that we see in the book of Revelation, we actually become that heavenly community on earth. Um, you know, praying the Lord's Prayer, like, would Father, would your uh, will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven? As we have our hearts and minds fixed on that, that we become that. And, you know, dreaming of heaven or, you know, Jesus' return is not a way, some people say, like, oh, it's like a way to escape reality. No, it actually brings us more, transforms how we live in our present today, that, what you, if you think about what God has prepared for you, it's like, I'm loved that much. That makes you more loving. I'm going to receive all that. That makes you joyful. I'm going to receive all that. That makes you more peaceful. Love, joy, peace. This is a fruit of the Spirit. That like, that's what's going to, I'm going to be given that. I'm filled with peace now. I'm filled with joy now. I'm filled with love now because we know that's going to be my end. And so that keeps me following now, today, even with what I face. And so what's your picture 
that you have as your end. And that's made me really think, oh, I'm like, man, I don't, I don't know what I'm, if I'm keeping that as my picture. Like, am I thinking about Jesus coming back and about eternity? And so I said, look, I said this has been a good, encouraging week for me as I've thought about these images and looked in the book of Revelation. I was like, I don't know if that's often my picture. I think I have other pictures in my head for what's motivating me. Like, when I make it here, when I have this picture, then you know, things will be okay. And so, uh, let me pray for us um, that this picture would flood our minds as we're living life following Jesus. Father, thank you for these what we see in the book of Revelation, that you would give this to us, this gift to us as a church, as your bride, uh, to see what you have in store for us. Would you please help us to keep the end in mind so we would keep following Jesus until the end. Would you let us not settle? Would you let us not fall for the devil's tricks? That we would not go astray to and fall to the hatred of the world or be tempted and lured away by the love of the world? Would you keep us strong and fill our minds, fill our hearts um, with these glorious pictures of what you have for those who love you. Follow Jesus to the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.